Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Before we get into today's episode, I've got three important updates for you. If you want to increase your success with mid-level and major gift fundraising, you need to grab a copy of Rainmaking, the Fundraiser's Guide to Landing Big Gifts. This book is in use by more than 3,000 nonprofits and has helped raise over a quarter of a billion dollars for charitable causes since 2013. As a leader and practitioner in the nonprofit sector, you may also be looking for a guide to help you navigate some of the biggest challenges that you face. That's why in 2019, I brought together 28 key leaders and fundraisers from across our sector to share their insights and help leaders like you avoid making costly mistakes. My newest book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them, is currently in the hands of more than 1,500 nonprofit leaders, helping them to navigate those key challenges. It can help you too. And you can get either of these resources or both of them simply by going out to Amazon today. The third thing that I've got for you is a request. If you enjoy this podcast and the conversations we have, I'd greatly appreciate you going out to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen and doing two things. If you can go out and give us a rating, then write us a brief review, I'd really appreciate it. Those two things help us find other listeners and they help me continue to secure great guests that'll bring valuable content and insights to you. So please take a minute today to go out and give us a rating and a quick review. It'll only take a minute to do. Thanks so much. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. I've been looking forward to this conversation all week long. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here in the virtual studio today with Matt Hackler, the Vice President of Strategic Capacity Development at Feeding America. In his role, Matt leads a team that develops, launches, and scales a suite of uh, capability building services to help local food banks achieve their food sourcing, client access, fundraising, and organizational development goals. Prior to joining Feeding America, Matt held a number of different senior level roles in the nonprofit sector, including as Director of Individual Corporate Giving at North Texas Food Bank. Hey, Matt, welcome to the show today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's fun to be here. Man, I'm really excited to have you here today. We're going to talk today about the the last 12 to 14 months of, of all of our lives, the COVID crisis, and what Feeding America's experience has been and your own experience in that time frame. Before we launch into that, though, I'd love if you'd take a few minutes and just share a little bit more about who you are and and tell our listeners a little bit more about Feeding America. For a little background on me, I'm like so many fundraisers in that I was accidental in coming into the field, right? So you're in nonprofits long enough and someone says, you're good with relationships. Can you please help us raise money? And so that's what happened. Um, so, you know, I was at a at a, um, a nonprofit organization that had aspirations to scale from a Texas-based, what we thought of then as a school garden program, which is now um, a great national leader in the outdoor education teacher education space called OutTeach. And uh, we never had a development director. And they said, you're good with relationships. Can you help us scale nationally? And I didn't know what that meant. And I was like, yeah. So, uh, I had to ask everybody how you did that, and uh, it's it's good when you don't know that you're supposed to have an ego in fundraising, and you just ask everybody how do you fundraise, because um, folks are I think uh, charmingly uh, surprised they're surprised by that kind of lack of ego, and they just tell you really good stuff, and that's how I learned how to fundraise by not knowing anything about fundraising. Um, 
And so then I ended up in a series of fundraising roles. And at Feeding America, I started um, when Feeding America decided that it would invest in sort of an in-house consultancy for the 200 food banks that are members of Feeding America. So that's called Network Fundraising Services. It still exists. My job is a little different now. Um, but that was uh, uh, Feeding America investing in fundraising capacity building for those folks. So um, that was in 2016. Uh, we had hired some consultants to kind of set that up. And then I was the first Feeding America staff member who kind of moved in. We rolled off the consultants and then um, we eventually, you know, had a couple of staff members that went out and tried to work hands-on with the food banks to build that up. Now my role has grown that actually worked that model of sort of resource intensive food bank fo focused key capability capacity building resource development capacity growth focus. And now we do that in some key areas, as you mentioned in the intro. And so I oversee those teams that are food bank facing uh, content experts in those areas. And, uh, and that's what we do. And we're continuing to grow that work. That's really cool. Cool. Thank you. So, so let's, let's get into this. You know, I, I'm really curious to know how the COVID pandemic has changed fundraising for Feeding America nationally, but also for your member food banks. What can you share with us about that? Well, I mean, I think for us, it's the biggest thing is the intensity, right? So we all knew that food banking and to, to the to a greater extent, probably human services fundraising, but definitely food banking. There's something about raising money to fight hunger that's so, I think people understand it or they believe they understand it, right? So so they, if, if they want to do something fundamental to strengthen their communities in a time of crisis, hunger people get on a visceral level and they might you know throw some dollars, make an investment of whatever size they feel is appropriate. So whenever there's an economic downturn in times of disaster, there's an acute crisis in a community, people often respond by investing in hunger. So the greater the intensity of the crisis, the greater the intensity of at least some people in that community to invest in hunger. And food banks with their strong brands across the country, I mean, the 200 members that make up the Feeding American Network, just have strong brands. They're trusted in their communities. They're known for what they do. They're very efficient operations. Um, and the value proposition seems pretty straightforward, at least for many folks in the community. So, so something happens. We believe hunger is, you know, raising its head in the community in a more intense way. Whether or not we understand the intensity of it on, a, on an average day is something entirely different. But COVID hit. We saw the restaurants and and you know shut down. We saw businesses shut down. We saw the lines grow, and then we saw an intensity of supporters just sort of coming in. The news stories start telling our story. I mean, just social media starts telling our story, and then the food banks become the recipients of the community's largesse. I mean, that's what happened, right? So intensity, that, that's been the, um, the biggest story. We knew that, though, because that happens periodically in food mm -hmm. banking. Right. And so every time, you know, Hurricane Harvey hits Houston, right, uh, the wildfires rage in parts of California, you know, an earthquake strikes Puerto Rico, and then a certain segment of the population, which is inclined to invest in the human services or hunger in particular, you know, donations go straight to those areas. When the Great Recession hit 2008, 2009, that was the first sort of similar situation that we had, where it was 
every community, every zip code simultaneous, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone understood that hunger was raising its head in a way that was intense and it was simultaneous everywhere. So then it wasn't, well, let's all turn our attention to, you know, the, the Northern Bay area, or let's all turn our attention to the greater Houston area. It was, okay, what's the food bank in my area? What's the food right. pantry in my neighborhood? And let's invest in those. And that's what happened here. But it was sudden and it was intense. And so, yeah. you know, it was sort of like spotlight, funds, food donate. I mean, all of that happened very, very quickly. So two follow-ups for you on that. First is, has the intensity let up at all? Yes. I mean, I think it's safe to say that there have been waves. Okay. And I believe it's safe to say that now that we've come into 2021, so the holidays are always really big fundraising times for sure. Banks. And so I, I cut my teeth in education and the arts, and I didn't understand what people were saying, like, <laughs> year in fundraising. And I'm like, not if you're an education, you know, ed reform nonprofit. I mean, no, listen, I'm trying to get everyone's attention doing, you know, outdoor teacher education at the year end. Then I worked at a food bank and I was like, I cannot stop, you know, for the entire <laughs> months of November and December. So then I understood year in fundraising, you know, craziness. So that's always, I mean, we have food banks that raised 40% of their money pre-COVID in that sort of November, December timeframe. So historically that was intense. Now that we've come through, you know, November, December, 2021, yes, there does seem to be a leveling off. The new okay. normal though is much, much higher. So January, 2020, uh, sorry, 2020. So January, 2021 is way higher than January 20, mm -hmm. anecdotally speaking, sure. way higher than January, 2020. But so we had that rush of, you know, influx, March, April into May, where it was like, whoa, what's happening, you know? Well, we knew what was happening, but we didn't know when the crest would come, right? Sure. Would it be a one or two weeks of heightened awareness? And then what is typically for us our lowest point of the year, which is the summer fundraising season, that was all elevated. But it did dip in the summer from that those high level that was in, you know, sort of March, April into May. Then in the fall, across the network and, and so the food bank network and for Feeding America's national office, it picked up in the fall and it stayed up. And then in the holiday season, it really picked up. So not only did we have, we wondered a little bit, some of us wondered, did some of that spring giving, giving signal a softening? I, sure. A lot of us did not believe that, but we are, gra you know, we are a grassroots human services movement. And so everyone's default position is, well, all that April giving means that people are not going to give in December. So we better <laughs> tighten our belts because that was it, right? There's only $2 this year and they gave one of the dollars in April. So we're only going to get one of the dollars in December. <laughs> and so, you know, just to kind of safeguard yeah. against spending and that sort of stuff. And so uh, that's not what happened. There were extra dollars this year. They gave two in April and then they gave two more in December, right? Okay. So. Cool. I'm, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the financial crisis back in 08, 09. Were there things that you, you Feeding America and the network of, of food banks learned in, in that 2008 to 2009 experience that you were able to apply in your response to COVID? Or is this just a completely different situation? No, absolutely. What we learned as fundraisers in the Great Recession, I, what I saw, I entered the network as the recession was conclusively coming to an end. When we entered the recession in 2008, 2009, and I think it's important to remember that food banking as a 
as a sector within the nonprofit sector is only a few decades old. So, right, there were laws that, that reduced the liability of, of companies to donate excess food, et cetera. So Feeding America was created in the early 80s. The oldest food bank in the country was created in the 60s. Most of them were created in the late 70s and 80s. I mean, so it's not like most parts of the nonprofit sector, which were fighting poverty in the 19th century or early 20th century. So, you know, we, we really are like, you know, Ronald Reagan era nonprofits, right? So, you know, we have folks that founded the nonprofits that are still the CEO. CEOs. Yeah, for um, sure. And yeah, so that's, you know, and uh, 10 years ago, it was most, you know, um, of the folks. So when the Great Recession hit, we were really, really fundraising programs driven by direct mail. Mm-hmm. I mean, direct mail works extraordinarily well in food banking. I mean, the yeah, efficiency. So, and, and again, for folks like me who came from, you know, education and the arts, like we were like, begrudgingly doing direct mail if because we were like well it, it's just barely worthwhile if you're you know target audience then i got to the north texas food bank where there were years where it was fivefold we were making five times in the recession what um we were outlaying for it well so the the problem is and this is one of the lessons learned that was not a sustainable business model. That was not because our direct mail programs were so sophisticated and we were using data in all this way. That was because the world was telling our story that hunger was here and hunger was now and it was in every corner of the US. And so naturally as the economy improved, we were not super sophisticated food banks. We were, we were largely successful great at doing our mission of delivering food, but our fundraising programs weren't necessarily super sophisticated. So we hadn't put all these things in place that helped us capitalize on that influx of support that came in during the Great Recession. So we had gradual but discernible attrition, mostly in our direct mail programs. We hadn't really set up very strong relationship management programs. So in the years as the, as the economy improved, in the years pre-COVID, as I was helping to set up the network fundraising services in-house consultancy, that those were the things that we were grappling mm-hmm. with as a network. How do we make the transitions? How do we segment donors? How do we create relationship management programs? We had not capitalized on the influx of support. We had just accepted it as great. The communities are stepping up for hunger. So when COVID happened, we were like, oh boy, we're not doing that again. So the fundraisers who who saw the COVID supporters came in were immediately on digital town halls, virtual town halls, Mm with our network fundraising services saying, what does my stewardship game look like? How do I talk to COVID donors differently than I talk to other donors? Um, I'm, I'm noticing that many of my COVID donors are donors who were lapsed for years who are coming back oh, in their databases. Huh. They, were, they were saying, um, many of my donors who were COVID donors are making second, third, and fourth gifts. And previously they were only making one gift a year at Christmas. The gifts are way larger than previous. My first-time donors are opting into being monthly donors on the second appeal. Um, they're seeing behavior changes that are very, very different. And so they were saying, I need to talk to these donors differently. How do I do it? Because they were still lean. I mean, food banks don't have sure. very huge fundraising staffs. So then that's what we were trying to do is help them create because they knew that um, retention was the opportunity. Uh, and they were looking for how do they do that. So that that's the really big difference was that's, that's folks huge. were keenly aware this is an opportunity, and and they were wondering, 
you know, a hurricane donor, for example, a disaster donor yep. is not going to retain, right? We say 10%, right? 11%. Um, but those are often donors in New York City who heard, who saw a story on CNN about what happened in Houston and were compelled to do it. Yeah. A, a recession donor gave for years mm-hmm. and slowly started giving less and then stopped giving. We see these donors as more like they live in Houston, for example. Right. They want to give in Houston. They just slowly, you know, there was a stewardship opportunity. Maybe it wasn't met. Maybe hunger stopped being a top priority. Maybe we missed an opportunity. What not? We don't want to. We want to keep as many of those folks as possible. They're revved up about hunger right now. We want to keep telling them a compelling story that makes sense to them. Yep. And then that changes over time as their interest might change. So let's talk about that for a second, because I've had a lot of conversations recently uh, with with our clients and and some of them food banks, and and the the question has been, when can we stop talking about COVID, right? Oh, and, and almost from the perspective of like you know, as a staff member, and I get it, you're you're tired, right? You you've been living in in the COVID crisis for 14 months now, and you just want it to be over, right? Mm-hmm. Um. I'm curious, I have a perspective on this, but I'm curious to get your thoughts. Like, what are you telling your your food bank uh, member partners like about, you know, A, do you stop? B, if so, when? How does that work? Yeah, well, one, we would never say stop talking about COVID. We would say talk about what you're doing. Perfect. Yep. And so, so, I mean, a food bank, if they're like, wow, you know, COVID's a bummer. <laughs> Hunger. <laughs> It's a crisis. I right. mean, you're like, you know, we're not sending kids to camp, right? Like, we don't, this is, hunger yeah. is a crisis. We're about trying to create sustainable solutions. And right now, we are facing some of the most elevated food insecurity in the country, and it's hitting different communities differently. Like, so what, what our donors want to know is, what are you doing? What, what solutions am I a part of? And critically, especially if they were motivated to give by a news story or a billboard or a direct mail piece, what we want to do is, and what has always been the challenge for us is, how do you move the donor who got a postcard that says, hunger's here, you know, uh, uh, the, we don't think unemployment levels are, uh, are going to go back to pre, pre-COVID rates for, you know, uh, 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. We don't want them, I mean, yes, they're inspired to give. What I want to know is, so what do you really care about? Do you care about racial equity? Do you care about, like, I want to get you in, I want to get you excited because I want you to give at the level that is a level that you're going to be proud of, that's going to get your family involved. When it's safe, we want you to be volunteering. Mm-hmm. We want you to be, I mean, we want you in. If hunger's one of your top three, we want you giving at a level that matches your affinity and, and the opportunity. I mean, we, we are delighted you're giving. And if giving in a transactional way through direct mail once or twice a year is the opportunity for you, great, God love you, thank you for engaging in the movement. But our challenge has always been that we've been working at such high volume with such lean staffs and without a lot of data that that's where it stopped for almost everyone, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We didn't know, well, who were the people in our databases who hunger is their number one issue? They have real giving opportunity but they want to know like what are you doing for kids and these rural corners of appalachia who because we've got a story to tell about that right but we don't even know that they care because all we do is get the check in 
and then we send them those beautiful thank you notes and then we send them you know right the, you, you, you know, know the last gift from they the gave CEO. and the date they gave it basically yeah right because we've never had the time to figure out who they are why do they give you know you know we just don't have time to do relationship management and yeah. and that sort of stuff so so yeah so what i would say is you know but also let's not you know, send the image of the lines and the cars at the drive-through distributions. Let's talk, you know, a little bit of that, but let's get a video um, as appropriate of a partner agency person saying, I want to tell you a story about what happened today in this line, someone who'd never been served by the charitable feeding system. And this is what they said about how dignified the experience was thanks to you, mm -hmm. Mr. or Mrs. Donor, or this is what we're doing, you know, with this special partner agency that's now open seven days a week. And this parent who said, I never could get here because I'm working three jobs, but thanks to you, we're now open seven days a week and I can get here between my two jobs and my kids can get, and wow, when I got here, it was full of fresh produce and, yeah. you know, milk and eggs and all this great stuff and not canned tuna and peanut butter, you know, right. which is also great. Nothing against tuna <laughs> or peanut butter. Um, but, you know, like we can tell those stories in addition to look at the long line of people and that sort right. of stuff. Yeah, for sure. So I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago um, when you were talking about you know, how, how the uh, member food banks were kind of, you know, their antenna was up and they were they were thinking about how they do things differently uh, during COVID. And you started to talk a little bit about sort of how the donors were behaving differently. And one of the things that we're seeing is that COVID acquired quote unquote donors seem to be in many cases retaining better and mm -hmm. giving slight, at least slightly more frequently than donors acquired pre-COVID. Are you seeing, it, it sounds like you're seeing the same thing, maybe even a little bit stronger. Um, anything different than that? No, we are seeing that higher average gifts, more frequent giving, and really exciting for us is opting into monthly giving programs and other sort of sustaining behaviors at much higher rates. So we're, you know, and we work with, um, there are certain partners in the direct mail space that work with lots of food bank clients, sure. folks yeah. like RKD, Alpha Dog, and One and All, and they've been great partners to us. So they'll, they'll share some, you know, aggregated data with our network fundraising services team. And so we see that across, you know, I think RKD, Alpha Dog has like 90 food bank clients or something. And so then we're able to say, guys, make sure you're pushing or even incentivizing, like you've got a donor who wants to, who cares about helping your, um, the food bank, ask them to match first time, you know, monthly donor givers or, sure. you know, whatever, yeah. or, or you want to opt in, to, like, you know, food bank donors, like maybe all donors love a match. And I'm like, <laughs> target your matches. You can have 18 going you know, because they can target different subsets of your donor base. So if what you're doing, you're tired of credit cards expiring in monthly donors, you know, and you have staff trying to chase down donors whose credit cards have lapsed, then get a donor who just matches everybody who moves from a credit card to a bank draft, For sure. right? Yeah. Just match that. Uh, then you can match this over here, right? So you've got the the opportunity for the donor, which like I said, we really need relationship management focus and we need to have these unique experiences for our top top donors that we need to get that have a real opportunity to grow in food banking because for many of them they came in at a level and they're still at that level right yep. it could have been five or six years ago because we've just been focusing on retention and um office seat stewardship right good stewardship but lots of office seat stewardship yep. and so things like these these targeted matches can be a great way in to then trying to do more personalized cultivation toward real gifts 
multi-year gifts that are not For tied sure. to capital campaigns, things like that. Yeah, yeah I, I was I was fascinated recently. I had a conversation with someone who is is putting together and, and did this last year as well. Uh, I don't know. Do you do you know uh, Jen Risher at, at Half My DAF? You, no, I don't. So uh, she and her husband and a small group of of friends of theirs uh, pulled together a million dollars last year and said you know, uh, right around the time when COVID first started. And they said, our goal is to get more money out of donor advised funds and onto the streets where it can be used, right? Uh -huh. So for every every dollar given out of a DAF, if you agree to like to spend your half of your DAF, they'll match it. Um, and, and it was wildly successful. I think they said they, they ended up uh, being able to account for like $8 million of spend. Oh, that's great. From that, right? So they're doing it again yeah. this year. That's another one, even if it's not through somebody like them. I mean, uh, you know, a, a significant donor who can put up a match uh, to, to challenge your donors to give from their donor advised fund. I love that. Giving Andrew, accounts if they have great. it would be really brilliant. Yeah. We're definitely going to take that. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, bet. it's great. Food bankers are all about those DAFs. They're like, how do I how do I move more money out of them? How do I talk to DAF owners? And we, we bring in folks from different community foundations or, you know, Fidelity or whatever to talk about that. And they always talk about the, well, they give at higher rates than the minimums on average and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, folks are always, you know, food banks are often seeking strategies to sort of unlock more of those DAF dollars. And that that's a really good one. So thank yeah, you so much for sharing. For sure. So talk to me about the role that Feeding America's brand plays in, in your ability to raise money nationally. And I'm also curious to know about how that intersects with the local food bank brand and their ability to, to raise money in their communities. Yeah, so Feeding America is not unique, but I think it's in a it's in a different position than many other nationally federated organizations in that. Um, so the, the relationship between the national organization and the member food banks is governed by a contract, but the contract is is by no means an exhaustive document. So we are. Um, they are members of, uh, we are a member organization, but they are all separate 501c3s and their brands, while we are linked contractually and through culture, they could look really different than us, right? We, they, they may not have words in their brands that look anything like ours. So right. you have a, a food bank like Feeding Northeast Florida, which is the member in the Jacksonville, Florida area. Um, but then you have the food bank in, in my um, hometown is Second Harvest Heartland, right? It, and so then you see on their website, member of Feeding America. But right. but like if you asked a person on the street and you're a former Minnesotan, if you're a person on the street, uh, what's the relationship between Second Harvest Heartland and Feeding America? They may or may not know, right? right. And so we've got two different brands. So I think those things are actually really complementary because what we find time and time again is Feeding America has a very strong brand nationally. People think of it as we are the largest domestic hunger relief organization. And we are the member for 200 food banks that serve every zip code in the United States and Puerto Rico. So if you were interested, if you were, if the value proposition to a, and this is often true for companies, I mean, a big portion, historically, this is changing under COVID, there's more and more individual dollars through, uh, you know, um, being attracted to the national organization, but folks who are interested at the national level, foundations, companies, um, then, then working with Feeding America is a way to just serve hunger across every zip code in the United States or multiple places where you have company, you know, corporate locations or, you know, you know, that sort of thing. Meanwhile, you know, in every community, 
the food bank's brand is very, very strong. And so those two things work in concert with one another. So we often are able to raise money from folks nationally. Those could be celebrities who want to do brand campaigns. Those could be uh, consumer packaged good companies who have been the bedrock of Feeding America. I mean, folks like General Mills and um, Procter and Gamble, they were at the Kroger, I mean, grocers, they right. were at the inception of Feeding America. <laughs> so they, those, those, um, uh, our current largest donor is Walmart. Those folks are interested. They do register campaigns. They do um, all sorts of cause marketing. That money often trickles down, oftentimes 100% to the food banks, right? Mm -hmm. And so Feeding America's brand strength at the national level then funds you know, on-the-ground work in every food bank. Walmart's um, uh, spring campaign, register campaign, Fight Hunger Spark Change, uh, funds every food bank in the network. Wow. So for, okay. for example, and they even bring a lot of their partners. So Kraft Heinz, I mean, people they sell in their stores, their, their partners. Um, meanwhile, the food banks themselves talking to their local businesses and especially their local individuals and their local foundations are raising a lot of money on the strength of their brand. So, and sometimes it works both ways. So a national partner comes in, gets really excited and then says, well, we want to get our company, our corporate employees involved, et cetera, et cetera. So then we're able to connect them with the local food bank. And then they become partners at local food bank as well. Uh, and then sometimes the local food bank has a, a corporate, a company gets really excited about, you know, they're a partner of the local food bank. And they say, you know, we have six national office locations. We want to make hunger our national charitable focus of our corporate foundation. Well, then they introduce them to Feeding America. So then their anchor food bank is their you know local food bank but then they have a national partnership of some kind as well so it's an interesting uh, model but it requires a whole lot of trust a whole <laughs> lot of communication and it's not like american cancer society or any of these affiliate organizations where there's a national playbook and then it's executed locally or any of that well what's what's interesting to me you know i've i've worked with probably most of your member food banks in the last 20 right. years. Wow. And I'm always astonished at how collaborative food bankers are because it's, it <laughs> is good. much stronger levels of collaboration than I've seen in just about every other subsector uh, of our industry. Just an observation, something I think is, is a great benefit to Feeding America and to the, the local food banks. It's just, it's way different than we see elsewhere. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll say I think food bankers are the salt of the earth. I mean, these are mission-driven people. Yep. The circumstances. I mean, we have never been full of like resource-laden folks, right? right. I mean, right. when you when you talk to the founders of these food banks, it's often like, well, I saw there was a need, and I went and found food, and I started giving it out, and now thirty years later, I'm the head of one of the largest charities in this town, and it's and like I still have I, the station wagon that I used to deliver it in. <laughs> right. And also, like, my chief development officer keeps telling me I can't take Wednesdays to go deliver the food like I really should, you know, and it's like, so there's that, you know. Um, so, I mean, that that really is the, the ethos. So, yeah. but it feels really good to hear you say that. I do yeah. think, we think that we can, food banks um, are 
Feeding America is a, is, a, is a nexus of food banks. Food banks themselves are the nexus of partner agencies, mm, yep. 60,000 nationally. 80% of the food that is moved to people in need is moved through partner agencies, which range from church basement food pantries to complex 501c3s themselves, which may mm. do much more than just deliver food to their communities. They can sure. case management, housing assistance, electric bills, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, we are networks on networks on networks. So that collaboration... I'm glad to hear you say that. And it, we want to go further and further and further because the more we do, the the bigger solutions we're going to unlock and and the, the closer we're going to get to truly having enough food where it needs to be. So when hunger rears its head, people know where to go before you miss the first meal. You got it. The system is the system is working. So let's hone in on that for a second, because I think it dovetails with really you know, the, the, the way you described your overall role at Feeding America in that capacity building arena, I, I understand how you got there uh, organizationally. What has been the impact, say, in the last five years uh, in your experience of the national organization focusing on elevating their capacity building at the local level? I think the biggest thing has been deepening trust through the investment of resources, lots of in-kind resources, lots of rolling up your sleeves and working in partnership in service to the members, in service to the food banks. So our model in capacity building is not the model of most other capacity building where, where you're like efficiency driven. Let's right. create a, a portal where we find the 20 behaviors that are least affected. And then we're going to roll out toolkits and, you know, that sort of thing that does exist. And I'm not saying that that's not very important, but we identified that some of the things that were, that were critically missing were confidence, and trust. And so our approach has been to deliberately do resource intensive investment. So, you know, we see, you see, if you go and talk to a, a nonprofit and you say, show me the last time, the last time you engaged with an, a consultant to help build your capacity, show me the product of that. <laughs> and sometimes you get these decks and they haven't even removed the other client's name some of the time, right? Yep. So they, they've clearly, and, and you, how much did you pay for this, right? So there are, you know, there's a lot out there. And it's not that the, the best practices that the consultants used were not correct, right? Sure. It's not that they don't actually give them good ideas, but this sort of highly templated, you know, come in, do your spiel for the board of directors, you know, it, there's a lot of promising of like, no, we're going to customize to you and we're going to match our strategies to your strategic plan. And then what you actually get at the end of the day is the same thing they give everybody. And the reason you know it is because the YMCA of Greater Denver's name is in four <laughs> places in the deck and your right. city harvest, right? <laughs> like, you know, and like they didn't yeah. even word search it, right? And you paid them twenty thousand dollars, or ten right? times that, or yeah. yeah, well, yeah. I would hope to God, you know, if you're doing that, maybe you're getting McKinsey, and they know enough to like actually word search the document. Anyway, so our approach has been roll up your sleeves, actually work with them. I mean, so a development assessment for us last months, we built tools. We the the recommendations are 
detailed. We do months of implementation support. If we can bring member grants to bear to actually help some of these lower resource food banks actually hire the person we're recommending, which is rare that we can actually do that, but we've been able to do it a few times, give them multiple years, help them write the job description. I mean, but that's not a business model right? That's a member organization saying we are going to invest resources. So this idea that you would, you know, break even or make a profit, that's not it. I mean, we are, we're trying to build confidence, build trust, because what we believe is if you do that, then the food bank that serves, you know, Appalachian, Kentucky, or, you know, highly, you know, disproportionately affected by food insecurity sections of the lower Mississippi Delta or whatever, that we can actually build their capacity and that 10 years from now, they're not going to have lost any of the ground that they're gained. But more important than that even is that they will be like, Feeding America is a partner to me. Right. I am interested. So when they tell me, hey, did you know we have this new thing where we can um, it's a it's a product we can actually do like uh, people can go online and choose their groceries and then collect them at like Walmart's. Huh. Okay. Are you interested in that? Well, I think Feeding America is like has my best interest at heart. So yeah. if they chose me for that, I'm open to hearing the pitch. So it's like using fundraising, which is all about me and helping me have the money to make my own choices and execute on my own strategic plan, is like a you're proving that you care and that you are their partner because it's just about them, they might then say, yeah, and I'm interested in partnering with my food bank across the state line in Alabama to see, can we collaborate on working with all the chicken processors here to get excess protein into the system? Well, what if we shared trucks? What if we, I mean, so that's what we're interested in is like unlocking through trust building in addition to building the sustainable skills and tools and resources that help them raise more money. And so that's why it's like, no, roll up your sleeves, be there, be responsive. Don't send them to a web portal and say, well, have you taken the online course? You know, yes, build the online course, but that's not the default. Right. No, that's a really smart model. So Matt, I got one more expensive. It, it, It for sure is at least on the front end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I don't know if you all are are doing any longitudinal studies on it, but I, I bet that you'll see some significant revenue impact, not necessarily maybe at the national level, but certainly at the local level, you know, over a decade from that capacity building effort. I, I can't imagine it wouldn't deliver that. We're, we're looking. And the other thing is we're a part of a group of federated nonprofits investing in fundraising capacity building that CCS has, com- has um, convened. And we've been meeting over the course of the past two and a half years or so. So United Way Worldwide, Make-A-Wish America, the Sierra Club, Audubon. So we're all taking different approaches. And it's interesting. really interesting. And uh, the approach I'm most interested in, the most developed is Boys and Girls Club. So anyway, okay. an idea, if you want to talk huh. to them, their model is very developed. Okay. Um, and also donor supported, um, which we would like. We would really <laughs> like that. Um, so yeah, anyway, interesting work. Cool. So last question, and then I will let you go for the morning. Um, and you mentioned it a little bit in one of your earlier uh, responses, but I'm curious to know how Feeding America is thinking about data and technology and how you might be able to use uh, and leverage some of the advancements in those two areas to deliver more relevant fundraising and, and more relevant giving opportunities to donors. 
So we are really interested in this area, and I think it's an area that holds some of the greatest promise. We're working in a couple of different ways. So one is exploring discrete pieces of software that create donor experiences, right? So okay. one is sort of, I don't want to call it scattershot, but it's just you know, exploring opportunities as they, as they arise. So those are things like the Feeding America National Office is, and I'm probably, the marketing team is gonna be like, Matt, this is so old news. What, we're doing this and this now. You don't even know about everything we're doing. But, you know, I remember when they first started working with Twitch and working with gamers and finding, you know, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. So, you know, like finding entirely new audiences online and through, you know, communities that engage with different kinds of software and online communities that are not traditional, philanthropic communities. So there's that. And then there were all the, you know, all the different software um, providers who, you know, pitch food banks and and, and, sure. and um, nonprofits around, well, this platform and this third party giving software and this, you know, um, uh, crowdfunding opportunity. So there's all of that, right? And we're, yeah. we're, we're going after moms who play tennis on Wednesdays and also have a child who's got red hair. And it's like, yeah, let's do that one, you know, because their income is slightly higher than moms who play tennis on Wednesdays and whose children are all blonde, you know? So, <laughs> um, so there are all of those and those are happening all across the, the network. What we're really interested in is, 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 software that helps us build donor experiences that um, feel authentic and that create pathways for donors. And so that's been really challenging. I don't know so much at the, and I think both at the national level and at the food bank level. And it's partly because of the sheer volume of donors in food banking. So like when I'm working at a, in the ed reform movement, I know all my donors. I know everybody. Like by name, right? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. like I have to go find them to get them right. to give. They don't like call me and give, right? Like I know everybody. I have to go chase them around. I have to do research. I have to create, you know what I mean? In food banking, the phone rings and someone gives. And sometimes the phone rings and the, the gift is big, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The, the mail comes and dollars come in and sometimes the gifts are big. So you can be distracted by inbound. It's sometimes hard to get out from under all the reactiveness. So like to be proactive, to do research, to understand um, how to get out from under all of the, the inbound, especially in a time like COVID is hard. Yeah. So software that helps us understand that and then create pathways for that subset of donors who who have the opportunity to really go on a journey with us to be multi-year big donors, to unlock networks. That's what we're really looking for. And, you know, I think there's some early promise here and there, but um, we're babes in the woods. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think it's a, it's a, it's the right vision to have, right? It's, it's where, at least in my opinion, you know, it mimics the commercial customer experience. Right. That that donors have become addicted to, right? Right. That's what they expect. The yeah. good news is they still think of food banks as food pantries. So they forgive us anything that we do that's like really ham-handed. So <laughs> I just tell food, I feel food bankers all the time. If we mess up, they forgive us because like they don't expect us to be super sophisticated. And we right, can yeah. really impress them whenever we are. So <laughs> we get to make mistakes in food banking, which is great, right? I, At least yeah. for now. For sure. For sure. Well, Matt, this has been a really uh, enjoyable and insightful conversation. I appreciate you being here today. If somebody wants to connect with you directly, what's the best way for people to do that? 
I would say by email. My email address is mahackler. So I have the second letter of my first name, mahackler at feedingamerica.org. Would love to continue the conversation. Thanks so much for the invitation to yeah. have this conversation. It's been a lot of fun for me Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Great. I'm glad. Take care. Thank you. You too. Uh, bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.